This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jai Paul Valenza. And I'm Dave D. Boat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. And this is Dave Debo. Coming up later on the program, Max Anderson from Open Buffalo is here. He'll be with Jay Moran talking about leadership and activism and really the roles I think that activists can play since the shooting. But first, Jennifer Connor is with me. She's executive director of Justice for Migrant Families. There are groups that the, the name almost says it all. They work with some of the region's new Americans and those who are seeking asylum and those who are also economic refugees and those who are uh, trying to work their way through the legal system here, uh, often black and brown people that come here from work. So there, there's a corollary here, and I think uh, in light of the situation on May 14th, there is much for us to discuss. Um, before she was with Migrant Families, she had done some work down in New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. And that, to me, is really interesting, folks. There is a, a parallel there and a lot of interesting things we can get into. So much to talk about. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. I think over the course of the, the discussion here, we can get into what the group is, mm -hmm. what well, Justice for Migrant Families does. But the, the quickest of overviews, who do you serve? Yeah, so Justice for Migrant Families, um, our community includes people who... Um, have entanglement with immigration enforcement, people involved in immigrant who are in immigrant detention or released from it, uh, people who are undocumented in Buffalo, people who have come here for work as economic refugees because there's no work in their um, their country of origin, and then asylum seekers um, who are in very long processes and in kind of immigration limbo. So when I hear the word migrant, I immediately think of. Uh uh, workers from south of the border in the fields on farms. Not necessarily the case. No, um, that there are certainly many workers who are here keeping um, New York's agricultural industry going, dependent on them, But and we certainly um, work with uh, in, our, in community with some of those folks. But no, we're talking about people as well from um, from many countries in uh, sure. Africa and Asia in, in many countries. And I'm reminded of uh, Dr. King, the letter from a Birmingham jail. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice <laughs> everywhere. Uh, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Mm -hmm. For you, there's a commonality here. No? Um, a commonality between? The people of the east side who were targeted uh, yeah. by the shooting. Mm -hmm and some of the populations you work with? Yeah, so uh, first of all, we um, certainly have um, community members who are on the east side and um, who live in the general area or who um, were certainly impacted by a white supremacist attack um, 
in their general neighborhood. And secondly, there is absolutely a correlation of um, attacks motivated by racism, by white supremacy, and um, and even in the person's uh, writings, they name immigrants, people mm-hmm. of color, and Jewish people. And um, these are all groups that have been targeted by white supremacy. And you think there were immigrants in the store? Oh, yes, absolutely. Time. Of course there were. Um, it's a neighborhood with a diverse array of people. And, um, and it is a primarily black community, but that doesn't mean it's not a diverse array right, of people right. either by language, by country of origin, um, by people's personal histories. What stories have they shared? Because I imagine um, for a person of color, being targeted is not something they want, not something they expected, but certainly something that is within their frame of reference. If we're talking about a new immigrant, they might not necessarily understand the idea of, if, if it is understandable, a gunman coming in and shooting at black people. So we did try to check in with our community, with members, and we yeah, there are many different um perspectives even those people had, or not perspectives, reactions and impacts. So we certainly saw impacts on the children, um, the fear amongst children, and then fa- for families to let um, just let their children go out. It was Buffalo was immediately also followed by Uvalde. And um, so let's see, for Latino families, they saw it in Buffalo and then among the Spanish-speaking community. But bigger picture, um, yeah, people have come here often fleeing violence in their home countries. And so this, um, to see this type of violence then in their home community now, it's... um, Triggering at the very least. At the very least triggering and discouraging and inspiring so much fear and and isolation, really, making people want to isolate. And then secondly, people do, um, especially people who've been here for less time, they don't necessarily have the cultural and historical context to understand what's happening and like where, what is the source of this problem? And there's a lot of room for education there and conversations. Um, People who have been here for a little bit longer and also who have um, honestly more English access or more language accessibility are able to grapple with it in a different way. That that was the part that I was picturing is is the cultural relevance. People who have been in the United States have at least an awareness. Um, people who haven't might not. How how do you talk to them? What do you do? <laughs> how do you, do you explain? How do you explain it? Well, gee, America's inherently racist. What do you say? <laughs> I um, I say that we are at this point because of hundreds of years of um, of <laughs> history of genocide and in enslavement of people, and that that is the historical root of getting us here today, and that you that doesn't. Uh, those those roots run deep, and we have not healed as a country from them. Um, and that's a very that's a starting point where I'm trying to um, explain very I don't know very quickly um, where some of this comes from because um, I don't think just by walking around on the east side and looking around you can say oh I can see where. Um, the roots of historical disinvestment come from. You can't see it, but just by looking, what you see are uh, storefronts that are run down or places that have not been taken care of. And more than, I think, historical disinvestment, we've had a lot of guests on the program previously say that America's history 
is violent. And I'm not talking just slavery. I'm talking mm-hmm. generally violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot on social this weekend about people who didn't necessarily feel comfortable celebrating July 4th. Ah, well, are, you, I, <laughs> are you one of them? I never feel comfortable celebrating July 4th. Um, you know, people were not free on July 4th, 1776. Um I was born on the bicentennial, 1976. Mm, okay. Um, so yeah, I personally don't feel comfortable, but um, and always the fireworks in Buffalo, like it's the pe- some people love them, and always for um, many of our the pe- immigrants who I know, it actually has been something to really get used to, where um, people have come from war zones, and but then mm. now, now you can argue that after. Um, May 14th, that a lot of people would be really uncomfortable. Sure, sure. Yeah. Triggering there as well. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about Katrina. It it was something you undertook yourself uh, back in 2005. You were in a different role then. It wasn't through justice for migrant families. But I think there's a lesson there that we can talk about. You went down in the wake of Hurricane Katrina and stayed there for a couple of months, several months. Yes, from uh, November to May, and um, I... (laughs) Go ahead. Yeah. So I was living in Charlottesville, Virginia at the time when the um, Katrina hit, and I heard about so many of the failed um, attempts to help, in quotes, Um, and so I was really feeling... Uh, failed attempt by sort of well-intentioned white people. And I don't even know if well-intentioned might be an overstatement um, and of the way that racism really infused a lot of those like rescue attempts. So I thought, you know what, um, as a white person, I could do I could do better. But I waited for a moment when I saw a place where my skills could be used, um, a group that had already existed on the ground that was already doing the work. And um a place that was inviting help. And I name those three things because I think in this moment in Buffalo, that's important uh, as well for people who want to do the work, the long-term work. And so I went to Katrina and I actually, um, I rebuilt bicycles. I worked on people's homes. So I worked on bicycle distribution. I worked on people's homes. And in the process, you were were in the community. You were out there. You were seeing some of the the long-term effects, and here's maybe where the parallel yeah. comes in, the long-term effects of what happens to cities and neighborhood and people who are neglected and deprived of resources systemically over a long period of time. Yeah. So New Orleans is an unbelievably culturally, historically rich place with amazing people. And it was so clear that a natural disaster had been preceded by... Um, preceded by man-made disaster by man-made disinvest by or human-made disinvestment uh by um for example the failure to adequately maintain canals in neighborhoods of community of uh communities of color as one example mm-hmm. or by the attempts of the armed sheriff to prevent people from escaping over the bridge from new orleans uh, turning people back who were fleeing a natural disaster so there were la- was layer on layer of um the way that that we it was a human created disaster as well and then afterwards with the displacement the ongoing displacement and then the sort of opportunistic land grab that happened afterwards again um just fueled by uh 
white supremacist uh, systems. So for you, it's more than Dr. King's letter. It's more than otherizing certain people, um, the folks of New Orleans or the folks of the East Side, deprived of resources, and therefore it's easy for us to kind of just, oh, I don't know, dismiss them. For you, it was more than that. There were there were things, like you said, uh, speculation, land grabs after the fact. Um, there was the idea, and we can, we can get into this, someone told you that you should either move in or go home. <laughs> that to me is really interesting. Yeah, so I was there for a while doing the sort of immediate work that needed to be done where people were trying to get people transportation and get people's homes cleaned out. Um, and after a number of months, people were in a better position. People had had a chance to return, reorganize. People on the ground um, were organizing longtime community members. And that, yes, there was a point at which they said, you have to either commit to, like, you live here or um, go home and do this same work in your back in your community because this wasn't just a hurricane. This uncovered um, how our white supremacist history has led us to this point. So, and I did. I went home and to Charlottesville, Virginia. I oh, there's yeah. much to say about Charlottesville. Which we might too. not have. We'll time get for, there. Yeah. Um, but so. I, I remember the headline recently in Business First of Buffalo, something to the effect of "What happens after CNN goes away?" Yes. Um, talking specifically about the uh, the East Side. Yeah. People helicoptered in. Mm-hmm. Thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, and then what? Mm-hmm. You saw that in Katrina, too. I did see that in Katrina, and I do think we have an opportunity in this moment. So an opportunity to um, invest in, again, the people, the community-centered solutions that are generated, that do exist on the east side, um, that simply lack investment and resources. Additionally, um, really giving growing the creative um, leaders that we need in the future. And I know you have Max Anderson coming on Emerging Leaders Program. I want to shout that one out um, as an on-the-ground resource for we need creativity to uh, approach our future. And then, um, but we also have to stop the bad. So like right now with city redistricting going on, um, that's a, this is an absolutely related issue where what happens with redistricting really matters a lot on the east side for representation and um, that process has not been there's a lot of room for the public to intervene there there's um, because it was initially not happening in a transparent and democratic way and that really matters for voting futures for districts and for how resources are allocated let, let me go off on that tangent for just a moment we are a city where the city council is majority minority. Does redistricting matter? He asks somewhat rhetorically. <laughs> um, redistricting really matters as a racial equity issue because our population has changed. And actually, um, we've had population growth. We've had growth in communities of color. And so our districts need to represent that. And actually, right now, um, people are sort of racially drawn into fewer districts. So we really should be seeing um, more representation. And additionally, we need to see women on city council. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's go back to the uh, Katrina parallels. I did I didn't want to touch yeah. on redistricting because I know yeah. that's that's a key issue for you. But you you spoke about Katrina and I think the East Side and the idea of community-based solutions. The idea that somewhere in the process 
there needs to be an assessment of what is needed on the ground rather than just, again, having these people helicopter in, as it were. Yes. And I mean, we also have seen which groups have had an ongoing presence there. I'm very excited to see um, investment in the African Heritage Food Co-op. Um, a Colored Girls Bike 2 has had an ongoing uh, transportation equity project. So there, and I could go on and on on the list. Mm. There are people generating creative solutions. Um, and because I'm here with Justice for Migrant Families, I also want to say that in that process, we need language access all across the board. And then additionally, as a small community group that has... Um, dealt with issues of rapid response, food distribution, um, health access. It can't all be small community groups. This, that's where investment and then um, actually having the city and county and state fund and create more equitable programs does matter. There is an effort in the community to try and reach out to Wegmans, Dashes, Aldi's, someone to bring in a new and different uh, grocery store. Is that the kind of thing that goes counter to what you're saying? That's that's a, a, a large corporation, a, a, a Wegmans <laughs> coming in, and profits would presumably trickle back to Rochester to some degree. That's different than the kind of community solution you're talking about, isn't it? Um, I think, again, we have opportunity in this moment. So I named African Heritage Food Co-op. I mm -hmm. also um, would name the um, worker cooperative incubator, Buffalo's worker cooperative incubator. But yeah, um, we have opportunity to come up with solutions where that keep in, um, dollars in our community. But I have to say, um, this is where community listening really matters because there, there may be people who say, um, I'm sure there are people who would say, <clears throat> I would love to have three different grocery stores to choose from, okay. right? So I think community listening is that I can't, you know, in some ways I can't answer for that because you got to ask the people who are going to shop in the grocery stores. And I do live on the west side. I don't live on the east side. Are there parallels between those two communities? Is there the same kind of disinvestment or even otherization on the west side that, that certainly led to, everyone says, the attacks on the east side? Um, well, the west side I, is less, um, it is less segregated by neighborhood. And then as a district, it is more compact. Um, so there are some differences there. But Buffalo as a whole is a segregated city and experiences the effects of um, of a, a racialized economic system. So um, everyone is impacted by that. The Partnership for the Public Good found that 75, possibly 85 percent of all people of color in Buffalo live east of Main Street. That kind of segregation is mm -hmm. just in the data. Yeah. What, what do we do about it? <laughs> well, you didn't prepare me for the question. How do we solve segregation in Buffalo? How, how do we solve? We have 10 minutes left, Jennifer. How do we solve yeah. all the problems the city faces? Huh. Um, so, again, I'm going to actually go back to... Um, <laughs> I'm going to go back to redistricting, to who, who our representatives are, and having leaders who co-govern with community. 
So where it is an active dialogue between community members, but it's also not just uh, those. It's not just nine or eleven elected representatives. If we included, if we mm-hmm. uh, increased, um, so. Housing is an absolute huge issue that I'm not an expert on. Okay. Um, and you, then immigration. I did not write it down in front of me, but that was actually next on my list. Yeah, so we housing is a huge that. issue that matters very much to um, the immigrant community that I work with quite a lot. It's one of it's the number two need behind um, lawyers and legal support. Um, and so. And but because I am here as a director of an immigration organization. Again, I'm going to put out language access just because it passed at the state level. We have some of it in place um, locally, but that really matters for communities to just be able to communicate with each other and then advocate for what they need. And so I think that really matters in terms of desegregation. Jennifer Connor is here. She is executive director of Justice for Migrant Families. Mm-hmm. Uh, if this was television, you would notice that she's wearing monarch butterfly <laughs> earrings. That's the... Uh, the coalition's um, logo, yeah. the idea that um, someone can be reborn as a butterfly. Is that what the, the oh, relevance is there? It's the symbol of free migration across borders. Okay. Oh, because they fly everywhere. They um, I travel now. from Mexico through the U.S., through Canada. Okay. That makes mm-hmm. sense. No passports. No passports required. <laughs> just flap your wings. Okay. Talk uh-huh. more. And I, I did hear you say that you're not an expert, but you are someone who certainly because of your work with migrants, has seen some of the issues this city faces involving housing. Talk to me about the scope of the problem and, to the degree you can, what we need to do to solve it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Easy questions today. Okay. Yeah. So I think this goes back to um, access issues where there um, is a lot of discrimination, in my opinion, based on country, well, no, based on people's immigration status. So I think it's good for people in Buffalo to know that many immigrants, that (laughs) immigrants are not all one type, are Mm. not here through one route. Okay. People come here through many different means and that each person's immigration story is unique and has, has different features to it. Most of the people that I know, work with, am in community with, have real obstacles in accessing very basic needs. So um, a lot of people I know do not And is have... that more than the language, which was yeah, on your list already? Yeah, it is more than language. A lot of people uh, don't have social security numbers. And so, um, f- for example, a worker cannot... Currently, a worker cannot access unemployment um, if they are out of work. A... Um, a single mother with a child cannot can get food stamps for two hundred dollars for her child for a month. Nothing for herself. Um, a couple who is in a bad housing situation can either stay in their very bad housing situation or go live in a unfurnished home with no electricity that is offered to them. And I'm giving you real life examples. Uh, mm. A family with a child who suddenly finds out that he has a chronic medical condition, well, he's going to turn 18 in four years. He won't have health insurance after that. So for four years, he's going to get his medication after that. What will happen? Those are all real-life examples. And there are solutions to all of these, which is why I named them. We could pass the excluded no more legislation at the state level to include all workers in Buffalo in unemployment insurance. Um, in terms of the... And, and there's... Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> That's what, maybe I'll just her stick list, with that one. We're almost she, out of time. I have a laundry list. Yeah, she, and there's her, her ways list to is solve long and her passion is large. Access issues. But then I do want to highlight, I know Max is coming on next, just the issues around policing and over-policing of communities of color. So this is really dangerous uh, and for people in our community that um, we don't have a good barrier between police and immigration, and there's no reason for it. So that could pass the state level this year with New York for All, but also the county and city could enact um, a barrier between police and immigration, and that's also true for our city's license plate readers. That when you no say barrier. a barrier between police and immigration, explain that. What do you mean? It means that there would be no data and information sharing between police and immigration that the poli- um, unless there was a judicial warrant, same as what is required for like someone to enter your home. So a Buffalo officer stops someone because their taillight is out. Yeah. They enter it into the computer. In your world, mm-hmm. it wouldn't automatically flag that they are an undocumented person. Yeah. In my world, that um, officer or what has happened, that officer would not then call Border Patrol. And say, uh, hey, we got and, an undocumented here. And a because the person's speaking Spanish, and then that person would not not come home that night to his family. So yeah, um, in, in not in my world, in the world that we are going to move towards, um, we are going to see that, uh, yeah, broken taillight's a broken taillight, um, and that those, those two things are separate. And then in terms of our work and detention, which we definitely don't have time for, but okay. it is very connected with um, the movement for decarceration, those two systems, both policing um, and then detention and jails and prisons mirror each other. And so anywhere that we can make progress in one, um, it ties to the other. And there's a parallel issue. uh, That's the other thing I wanted to touch on before we wind up here. Um, The things you advocate for on behalf of migrant families certainly could have a spinoff effect for some of the problems that the East Side is facing. Address that. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm talking about East Side residents. And and over uh, over policing of communities of color is it's a to say it's a big problem is an understatement. Um, But we do have to stop the bad while we build Mm. the good. Um, And so it's important to protect and um, hand in hand with um, stopping over policing is the last maybe last minute of time for which is to provide actual legal um, some funding for legal resources for immigrants. Um, and as an example, uh, even for refugee families uh, where their kids have grown up here, those kids then can often run into the um, get caught in that kind of over policing where it involves police, it involves immigration and can end in disaster. Um, but we don't have to have that. We could have uh, better legal support in the city with city funding for some of those things and then with um, policies. Activists and advocates are in almost the business. I don't want to describe it as a business, but uh, their avocation is to press for certain things. And oftentimes those certain things just don't happen and they continue to press. So with you and others like you, I'm not sure this is as relevant as a question as it usually is. But I I love to try and end the interview with the same question Mm -hmm. Uh, I've asked of many people. Do you have hope? After banging your head against the wall, as many times as I imagine an activist does, mm-hmm. do you have hope? Absolutely. Um, I Every day I talk with people who have been through the most unbelievable trial and tribulation, and I have seen so many victories on the individual level. And I've seen individu- victories on the 
um, systemic level two, even right now, as city council is reconsidering their redistricting plan and should hear from all of you who are listening. Um, I that's think this is an important issue for her, folks. Wink, wink, <laughs> nudge, nudge. Well, it's a very uh, current issue that's going to have yeah. implications for 10 years. And it really matters for immigrants because immigrants are like that's where our population growth came from. And that's why we can redistrict. And yet that process specifically has there hasn't been outreach to immigrants. So also specifically for immigrant communities that might hear me today, um, call your city council person. They are supposed to represent you as well. I'm intrigued, though, by the idea that you say you have hope in part because you've seen systemic change. Change yeah. is possible. Oh, yes, change is possible. <laughs> I am, Elaborate for I me. Do because land on that side. I, I, I think one of the things that has been an echo on this program from guest to guest to guest is that the problems the East Side is facing are certainly systemic. You're saying that systems can sometimes change, or, or is the parallel not exact here? I think that for all of us in Buffalo who are looking to make change um, through all parts of the city and certainly um, east side-based organizations, we're ready for the moment when there's an opening and you don't know when that catalyzing moment will come. So my perspective, we keep working, um, doing all of the day-to-day -day work. So, And we are ready for those catalyzing moments when we can really press and see something change. I know that we're in really demoralizing, dismaying, discouraging, disheartening, all of the dis's times. But um, I think we all keep doing the work because there are openings, um, sudden moments of change. And last question, what does Buffalo need? <laughs> uh, to listen no, to listen to the people and to uh, let the people lead. All right. Jennifer, thanks so much for being here. This, this has been enlightening and, and interesting. Jennifer Connor is the Executive Director of Justice for Migrant Families. If someone needs to know more, how do they get in touch? We are on the um, web at justiceformigrantfamilies.org. We are on Facebook also, Instagram. Uh, Facebook and Instagram is our initials, J-F-M-F of W-N-Y. All right, very good. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Coming up next, Jay Moran standing by with Max Anderson. He's from Open Buffalo. A lot of what they talk about is leadership and growing that next generation or even the current uh, generation of activists willing to take on a role in the community. More to come. Stay with us. Watch the WNED PBS original production, Daredevils of Niagara Falls. I think part of the lure of Niagara was that it was understood to be a very dangerous place. A daredevil is somebody who goes out and does a daring thing. Maybe they make it and maybe they don't. Daredevils of Niagara Falls, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. It's one thing to love public media, but it's a special thing to support it. Consider this. If you've got a car you don't need anymore, or you've got one that's simply too expensive to repair, arrange to donate it to Buffalo Toronto Public Media. It's easy for you, pickup is free, and it could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. Here's how to get started. Go to wned.org vehicles. 
This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next with us, Max Anderson, Deputy Director of Open Buffalo. Max, hi. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Great to have you with us uh, for sure here, uh, Max. There's obviously a lot to, to get into. Um, we've had some folks on from Open Buffalo already, but I I feel that it's always good to reiterate because it's the, one of the goals of this show is to highlight elements inside the community. So let's just talk about Open Buffalo and its mission. Great. Um, yeah, so uh, Open Buffalo's mission is to advance racial, economic, and ecological justice in Buffalo and to eradicate poverty, racism, and uh, environmental racism. Um, that comes in a lot of, um, our work comes in a lot of different uh, kind of uh a lot of different forms. Sure. Uh, our main work is in leadership development and advocacy. Um, so most people probably know us for our Emerging Leaders program, uh, which has been running since 2015. Uh, we've had almost 150 graduates from that program over the years. Um, they learn everything from organizing to uh, relationship building to um, learning how to tell and cultivate their own personal story finding the power that they have within them and helping to connect with others and inspire them with their stories and um, organize and build something great and beautiful and, and big and bold uh, to change the community around them. Sure. So the Emerging Leaders uh, Program then, uh, who who seeks that out? Who do you seek for that program? Um, so it's uh, our each Emerging Leaders class is very eclectic. Um, we The kind of... Um, the barriers or thresholds for entry are people um, who have experienced some form of systemic injustice. Um, so we have, when we launched the program, we had um, some specific uh, recruitment goals. Um, we were looking for people who have had uh, interaction with the criminal justice system. Uh, we're looking for women. We're looking for young people. Uh, we're looking for people of color. And we're looking for uh, immigrants and refugees, new Americans, um, knowing that um, these are the people who are closest to the problems that we're dealing with as society, and we think that they're the people who are closest to the solutions and our most innovative um, folks. Our first class of emerging leaders had um, fast food workers who were active in the Fight for 15 movement to um, increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour, alongside um, uh, law students, alongside um, people who uh, worked for, we had um, some uh, staffers for politicians and people who are like mid-level professionals. Um, and our age range has gone from 17 to over 70. Um, and everyone, you know, comes together and, um, you know, we are able to build relationships and distill down, you know, what are the things that bring us together? What are the things we have in common? What resources do we all bring into the room in terms of our um, skills, our knowledge, and our networks and communities? And what can we do together to really change things and make the community better and safer? So the uh, individuals who are going through this Emerging Leaders Program, they have had, they've been touched by racial injustice in some sort of form. So they, it, it's very personal then. 
How, how do you work through that? I mean, do you utilize that personal element that, and, and try to take that passion and, and help lead it forward? Or is it something that you have to kind of uh, distill down and, and, and make sure that it, it stays on a more uh, uh, maybe a, a rational basis rather than um, getting too pa- passionate? It's, uh, you know, I would say it's controlled passion. Okay. Um, it's uh, we definitely find a balancing point of delivering and helping people cultivate hard skills, but also doing that self-work to look inward and explore what experiences they've been through. Um, We do a lot of um, what we call getting on the bike. So just Hmm. getting on and trying trying out some different practices of um, self-exploration, of journaling, of kind of going through your memory bank of different experiences you've had, um, what were some challenges you might have faced, what choices did you make in those scenarios, and what was the outcome? So, you know, really helping you to, it can can definitely be an emotional experience. I think, yes. um, But, you know, we over the years have made modifications to the program to give people space to breathe. We take them out, you know, when we are eight, when we have resources to do so, we take our leaders out on retreats, um, like to Beaver Hollow, um, so they can kind of get out of their normal environment and normal stressors of daily life and have a full weekend away to kind of work on themselves. Um, and, you know, hopefully by the end of the weekend or by the end of the program or maybe a few years down the line, they'll have uh, really cultivated their story and really understand themselves better, understand why they are called to leadership and, you know, what they have to offer and have the confidence to go out and tell people their story, um, the elements of their story that they that they feel empowered sharing. Sure. Um, not just going out and venting and dumping, you know, all your um, traumas on someone because, you know, that can be triggering and traumatic to the listener as well. Um, so it's it's definitely uh, it's a practice and it's something that we work on refining constantly. Um, it's done through, you know, everyone who goes through the program has a mentor. Um, we have coaches that help folks through the sessions to kind of work through any any issues they might be. Uh, resurrecting in their in their minds, um, but you know it's this, interesting. Yeah. I was just going to say, sorry for cutting off, but sure. it's just interesting. As you're talking about this, I could see how people would get attached to their stories, feel confident in a group. We're out at uh, at mm-hmm. uh, Beaver Hollow, talking to each other about it, but then making that jump. How do you how do you help them, or how do you know, or how can they know? Be sure, sure that. Well, now they're in a different setting. They're mm-hmm. in a different setting. It's a work setting. It's a uh, a job interview. Whatever the case may be, how are how do we know that they're going to be confident to take what they've learned here, that tell that story of themselves, and 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 bring it to fruitful uh, purpose? You know, it's just um, repetition. It's practice. Um, we we share in front of one another. We celebrate one another during the trainings. We do a talent show at the end. Really? Um, yeah, but really, you know, it, it comes down to just uh, learning how to something when you're learning how to do your story and going through these processes, you're also learning how to listen and how to a- um, be an active observer and an active listener to people around you while they're telling their stories. 
Um, so I like to say I have, you know, an infinite number of stories <laughs> at any, to use at any <laughs> given moment. Um, but really, it's all about, you know, if you're knocking on the doors, if you're canvassing, you know, we've been doing a lot of canvassing of uh, the community uh, around Jefferson Avenue, where our office is um, in the last few weeks. And, you know, just being able to listen and observe and connect with people about basic human stuff. Like, um, I remember canvassing uh, a few years ago in the Fruit Belt talking about housing issues and the need for a community benefits agreement with the medical campus or a land trust. You know, we were working on these issues at the time. And the person whose door I knocked on, she had, uh, I could tell I wasn't connecting just talking about um, these uh, kind of economic development policies and mechanisms we're trying to build, right? Um, but I asked, you know, what do you, um, I mentioned something about how the community, we wanted to try to have a uh, youth center or a community center built. And she's like, oh, yeah, we need something for these kids to do. I drive a bus and, you know, she's very, I could tell just by that one thing, she really latched on and connected with youth development and support and resources for youth. And we were able to have a conversation based off of that, um, which is an element of our plan at the time. But, um, you know, it was, you, you have to really just be able to listen and observe people and see where they're at, ask questions. Um in order to know how to connect with them best, right? Um, that's really what it comes down to. So it doesn't have to be your, you don't have to try to shoehorn in your pre, pre, um, prefabricated story sure. that you use to motivate people. Um, it could be something about, um, you know, how I, I, every morning when we're starting meetings, I'll bring up some challenge that I overcame with getting a three-year-old dressed and her hair done and fed and out the door on time before getting to work. So, and a lot of people can connect to those kind of things, you know, like parents, family, and um, community issues. So it's really just being open and observing and listening to people. Interesting then, because I did see on your website how you, you guys have been canvassing in that Jefferson neighborhood mm -hmm. in the last few weeks. What are we hearing? What are you hearing uh, from folks? I mean, some of it seems obvious, but at the same time, it's one of the things that we've discovered here in the last month of doing this show. Everybody has their own story. Everybody has their own issue. And it, in many cases, can be quite profound, What, especially considering what happened on May 14th, right there in the neighborhood. What are you hearing from, from people? Uh, yeah, so we are located one block from Tops. Um, you know, and we were in that neighborhood constantly, like most of most of our time is spent over there. Um, we did some canvassing on like Laurel and Riley um, streets a few weeks ago. Well, we've been doing it consistently, but I'm thinking of a specific time a few weeks ago. Um, and, you know, some people haven't left the house. Some people are scared to venture out into pu large public spaces. Um, some people definitely don't want to go back into that um into that that uh you're business. hearing that some people aren't going to go back there yeah so you know it, it's it's a mixture obviously when you know immediate needs need to be met you know you need food we need water we need um shelter so uh, i think people a lot of people are coming around to the fact that you know they they need a grocery store there is no food access in that community for like healthy produce um and it's something people have been complaining about for a long time, the quality of the tops, um, but it's all that we have over there. So um, it's a very 
people are calculating, making some very difficult um, kind of decisions that nobody should ever really have to go through. Um, you know, some people we, um, one house I remember that we went to, um, it was a mother who was, a, she was out at the time and her um, young, you know, elementary age daughter was home and uh, at the time of the incident and she, the daughter like sprinted home and in the in the time before she got home, the mother was calling and couldn't get an answer from her, you know, and just mm. thinking about the um, not only the immediate trauma of people who who were directly connected, who were there, who were across the street, who maybe just heard down the street, um, let alone just people who are black and people who um, have you know, been distrustful, um, you know, Buffalo has this, like, Buffalo's infamous for our segregation, right? Certainly. Our racial segregation. And I think people are, you know, people have grown up in, and we've been swimming in the water of segrega waters of segregation for decades, right? And all of a sudden, someone invaded that, um, the bubble of, of, you know, the blackest, one of the blackest zip codes in upstate New York and um, committed a terrorist attack against us. So, like, it just completely shatters the psyche and the kind of... And it's resounding um, throughout the, the neighborhoods, you feel? I think so, yeah. And I, and I don't think it's, um, it, you know, it comes in a lot of different forms, right? It's For some, it's fear. For others, it's anger, distrust. Um, we've had people flat out say that they don't trust white people um and you know we're we're very intentional about how we approach people um with canvassing you know we go in teams we're um almost all people of color who are out canvassing and knocking on doors you know just realizing the sensitivity and, and the rawness of the moment um and yeah we're just there to you know we don't have an agenda um, we want to listen, we want to learn, we want to connect people to resources like the African Heritage Food Co-op. So we have a survey where um, we can determine people's needs um, in terms of food, supplies. Um, Open Buffalo recently started a diaper club. Um, so, Because that's become a big issue since yeah. the Tops is closed. Uh, yep. Getting those personal items just haven't been available. Yep. Um, diapers, feminine products. Um, we were able to get some formula and wipes as well, and we're trying to change the mode of just rapid response, shoveling out supplies. You know, right. it's been this kind of circus of trucks pulling in, dumping stuff out, volunteers in bright colored shirts like um, coming in, um, cleaning up a little bit somebody else's house. <laughs> you know, the community is this is someone else's spot, and Certainly. you know they don't necessarily need. Um, don't need like all, all, Don't need all aid is not right. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all, all hands are not necessarily helpful hands. Right. So, um, but anyway, like with the diaper club, what we're doing is we're having people sign up and register, and we're going to offer some other opportunities for healing. Um, you know, we're working on building out this uh, a small yoga program that people can do 15 minutes. You know, you can come in, you can work on yourself and your spirit, and you know whatever you want to bring to the space. If if you just want to pull up and grab your bag and head off, that's fine too. Sure. But we want to, if you want to build a relationship with us and with other people who are dealing with similar situation, we want to build that relationship with you too.
We are talking with uh, Max Anderson, Deputy Director of Open Buffalo here on uh, Buffalo What's Next. Uh, what about for Open Buffalo, when it comes to success for Open Buffalo, what does it look like? Um, you know, if you would have asked me this on May 13th, I might give a similar answer. You know, I, I always say um, it's looking at the success of our emerging leaders. I mentioned, you know, we've had almost 150 graduates who've gone on to do amazing things. Um, but it's really um, the, you know, the aftermath of the attack has really shined a light on just the beautiful work that our leaders are doing in the community now. Um, you know, thinking about people like um, Denise Walden, who's executive director of Voice Buffalo. She's like constantly um, running herself into the ground, um, supporting other people, you know, and being there as a resource um, to uh, the families, to TOPS employees, to people who are directly impacted. Um, and um, we have, on the other hand, Razi. Uh, so Denise went through our Emerging Leaders class in 2016. She also worked for us uh, for a number of uh, years as well. Um, Razia Hill from our 2020 class, um, she has a nonprofit called Every Bottom Covered. And there, you definitely have to have her on this show. Okay. Um, she has come by Open Buffalo with um, dozens of boxes of diapers. And we've been able to distribute, you know, thousands of diapers to people. Um, and, you know, she's she was doing this way before this became like a mainstream issue, you know, because access to... Um, supplies for kids and diapers has been an issue for you know impoverished communities um for a long time so this is just you know the supply chain shortage and all the 2021 22 economics has kind of brought new light to those things but um she's been doing work to support the community around um around that for for years um and you know we have others who have um you know, our first, our city's first poet laureate, um, Jillian Hainsworth, you know, India Walton was in our first class of emerging leaders. So we're just really, and we see them like really springing into action in this moment when there's so much need and so much pain. Um, and really coming from with, you know, you can see there's a lot of diversity among those people, right? We have people who are interested in politics, the arts, um, direct services to the community, um, yeah, they're, so, yeah. But yet they're fueled, it seems to me, back to that whole thing about passion. There's a, a passion for their community and to try to improve the conditions for for black people in Buffalo. That's true. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, there a lot of people in our work are empaths. Um, I don't even know if that's a real word, but I know that's a very well, popular word. It most certainly yeah. works um, in a lot, of, a lot of conversations. Yeah, but, you know, we feel very deeply, um, you know, we people that go through our program, we really um, help them to find out the power in them and like what skills they have to bring to bear to improve Buffalo. So it could be, um, you know, we knew from from the jump that India was a really great speaker, okay. right? Really powerful. I remember I was teaching a, a workshop um, in one year, and she she had come back as a trainer, and people were doing group work, and you know, I'm not. 
I'm a pretty soft-spoken guy, <laughs> and I need to get the attention of a room full of people, uh, 50 people who are in small group chat and, you know, chattering, and I'm like, India, can I borrow your voice for a second? <laughs> and she got everybody back. I bet she did. <laughs> um, so, you know, and Jillian, you know, is an amazing uh, poet. Um, we have Leah Daniel, who started a nonprofit, Fostering Greatness, to help and empower um, youth or people who've gone come through the foster care system. Um, so, really, the, just the diversity of our alumni base is really incredible in terms of their interests and the different areas of life in Buffalo they're able to impact. It's interesting, you know, you've mentioned India Walton, for example, somebody who came out of your organization, um, obviously made a huge impact in terms of politics. Um, it was just last year, wasn't it, uh, mm -hmm. that she ran for mayor and seemed on the verge of, of winning that office for a, a point. What about for Open Buffalo, though? Obviously, India, she clashed with the city administration. Open Buffalo, what's the relationship with Open Buffalo and the leaders of the city of Buffalo? Um, so, you know, we're a 501c3. Uh, we're an uh, apolitical organization. Um, we, when we see issues that um, we need that need fixing we work on those issues we'd like to say we focus on the policy not the politician um, so you know in 20 um, 2016 we really started looking more deeply at some of the disparities in policing and incarceration um, and what we did is we went out and well first we you know we tried talking to um, city leaders about the issues um, and the need for community oriented policing which is you know more officers getting out of the cars, getting out of the squad cars, building relationships with people, walking beats, and um, that level of trust building that was um, absent at the time. Um, and, you know, we tried talking directly, and nobody would listen to us because, you know, I think sometimes there's not that impetus to change unless something big happens. Sure. Um, so... What we did is we went out and talked to 2,000 people in the city at bus stops, on corners, at um, you know, at barber shops, at community centers, and we um, we administered the survey to them and said, you know, what are your perceptions of policing in Buffalo? How do you feel um, the police department respects you, your community, people of color? Do they respect women? Do they respect immigrants? Um, do you feel safe calling the police? Do you, if something was going on in your street, would you actually call the police? Um, and we were able to take that data and, you know, crunch the data with some of our partners, like uh, Partnership for the Public Good, which is a local uh, think tank. And we were able to come up with 21 recommendations for improvements to policing in Buffalo, really centered around that concept of community-oriented policing. Um, and, you know, we've seen... Uh, a lot of those recommendations come into place, like uh, body cameras, uh, pilot program for that um, happened after we uh, launched our report. Um, so you can't, so what you're saying is you, you have been able to move city government to a certain extent. Obviously, there's more that you want to do. Yeah, to an extent. Um, we, we definitely don't shy away from, you know, we, we don't shy away from direct engagement with leaders and with politicians. Um, but we also don't shy away from activism. So, like, we like to have a direct conversation, make some direct asks or demands, uh, like in terms of policing or when I was talking earlier about the um, 
pushing for a community benefits agreement with the uh, Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus. If you get it rebuffed and pushed aside, then you know you, you re-strategize, you come back with your people, and you figure out how are we going to build enough power to make someone listen to us. You know, Max, uh, I'm, I've worked on a thousand different questions here, but our, our conversation has veered off in, into some really interesting directions here. And since we got onto the topic here about addressing policing in, in the city of Buffalo, Again, this is anecdotal, but perhaps rather than a a full-length survey of things, but is there a sense that there have been improvements between the police department and the black neighborhoods of of Buffalo? Um, I think... I think there are definitely a lot of uh, effort, positive efforts and uh, overtures being made by uh, the police department. You know, all the a few years ago, Commissioner Lockwood announced that every officer going coming through the academy was going to be a community-oriented police officer. Okay. Right? That that language was not used before we had started. Uh, really pushing for this and complaining about the need for this relationship building, right? Um, so that includes, you know, de-escalation training. It includes um, diversifying the classes when I'm uh, the cadet classes. So like when I'm driving around or if I see um, police officers driving by, I am seeing very diverse uh, faces and um, different genders, you know, behind the wheel of the cars. But um, in terms of uh, trust and building and relationship building, you know, I haven't we haven't done a survey since that original one. I think that um, hopefully the department is doing some kind of surveying of its own to really see how they're doing, and not just waiting for uh, to respond to complaints about you know brutality or about um, people being mistreated by the police. Because yeah, clearly there's a legacy here that's going to take. It's not going to change people's perceptions overnight. Right. There's no doubt about that. Hmm. Um, you know, I just want to veer off just for a second here into your personal story a little bit in your own bio. And I, I caught, this caught my, my attention. Um, you, you developed a passion, I'm quoting here, for personal growth through linguistics, communication, and cultural mashups. Talk about linguistics just a little bit there and, and what we can, what lessons are inside that? Because it's one of those things, maybe it's not something that everybody thinks about, but Linguistics holds a lot of uh, insight into culture, multicultures. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I grew up in a very multicultural household. Well, our culture was um, Jamaican. Like my um, parents and my older brother moved to the U.S. a few years before I was born. Um, but like what happens with a lot of um, new Americans is you kind of build bonds and build community with other folks who are from different countries. So like Thanksgiving, we would have, you know, we celebrate American Thanksgiving with uh, friends from Korea, from Africa, from uh, Ireland, you know, all in our um, in our home, you know, and I feel like it helped me to develop um, one, just an understanding of how folks communicate how to, you know, I feel like I have an ear for languages and kind of hearing th- through accents and language barriers that other people might have. And that led me to um, really loving and pursuing language study. Um, so I studied French and Spanish and uh, international relations. Um, also understand Patois from our country. Um, but really what I think it helped prepare me to do that kind of upbringing is to just 
meet people where they are, to hear them, to listen uh, with you know my whole being, my whole heart, um, to really you know sometimes you, somebody there might be a barrier, and you know you see you see someone maybe in a customer service situation getting frustrated because uh, the customer has a language barrier, right? And then they try talking louder, or they get angry, um, but. You know, if you really just simmer down a little bit and maybe listen um, and observe, you know, use your whole active listening toolkit, um, we can really understand each other and cut through a lot of our, I think, our differences and really um, translate what we mean uh, into any format. And I, I think that's going back to the storytelling aspect and helping our emerging leaders to um, communicate. Um, it's really helping people to get those kind of core observation skills and listening um, down and being able to communicate with anybody about anything. Max Anderson of Open Buffalo, thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO, WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WUBJ, Jamestown.